0: Welcome folks. In today's podcast we are going to discuss the differences between anomalistic psychology and parapsychology. Welcome to Dr Neil Dagnall. Hi Neil, how are you?
1: I'm fine, thank you Ken. Looking forward to talking about this topic.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? And for those who are listening, my name is Dr Ken Drinkwater. So welcome to this little little journey through the anomalistic psychology. So let's just start off with a few definitions Neil do you want to to talk us through a few for say parapsychology?
1: I think the first thing just before we look at the definitions is just to make the distinction to people or the importance of the distinction clear because people often confuse the two terms. Parapsychology is the study of alleged psychic phenomena so that's things like extrasensory perception, telepathy, precognition, clairvoyance, psychokinesis, telekinesis, Those sorts of mental powers where you're either able to tap into other people's thoughts, communicate mentally, or even move objects with your mind, or influence statistical probability. So that's the core of what paranormal is. It's the idea that there's these psychic phenomena, and also other paranormal claims. For example, near-death experiences, apparitional experiences, ghosts. So parapsychology is interested with the study of things that are beyond conventional science. And people who study parapsychology often believe that these abilities, these phenomena exist. Now, of course, critics point to the fact that parapsychology is a pseudoscience, partially because of the lack of um Replicability. So people will produce significant results from time to time, but they will be difficult to produce consistently.
0: Can I just ask you something there While you while you're telling me some really good stuff there, do you think it highlights the disciplines' paradoxical relationship with science? Do you think that's got something to play a part
1: to play in this? Well, parapsychologists would say that they are being scientific and they are using rigorous methods, and that their subject matter is genuine. Whereas critics would say there's no evidence for the sorts of phenomena that parapsychologists are alleging exist.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good it's a good answer. I think it's pertinent because of the fact that parapsychologists are just as rigorous as, as people who profess to be within the psychological and, and the psychology realms of science, don't they?
1: Yeah, I think the issue is it's the starting point. And the starting point is that hmm. these psychic powers, these things that are beyond conventional science are worthy of study and potentially exist. That's the starting point for parapsychologists. So not all parapsychologists would say that all of these phenomena exist, but they would approach them with the starting point that they do or possibly mm. do.
0: Yeah, I suppose I suppose you could say that parapsychology in that case, then, is it's undertaken as a scientific endeavour, isn't it, regardless of the subject and regardless of perhaps believing in everything.
1: Yeah, the criticism of parapsychology comes from the fact that people continue to investigate despite being able to provide convincing evidence. And that's the key there, the word convincing evidence. So evidence from time to time is produced, but it lacks consistency or is open to interpretation. Also, as part of that interpretive process, people often bring in criticisms of the methodology that's been used such as the lack of rigorous controls mm. and or the possibility that the results have been produced by natural, normal phenomena.
0: No, I just thought I'd, I'd ask a couple of those questions because I think people listening to the conversation about this, it's quite nice to place it within the confines of it being part of science. And it, and it is a scientific endeavour.
1: It is. And parapsychology, as we said, is motivated by the desire to scientifically study things that are outside the realms of conventional science
0: yeah that's right because it's, it's that point isn't it about trying to explain things because outside of, of the realms of normal science science goes so far to explain things but when when it's left you know that it can't explain say some anomalous event and we'll come to anomalistic in a minute but if there's something seen as anomalous that's when they
1: start to look at alternative explanations don't they Indeed, and and due to the criticisms of parapsychology, people have developed very rigorous methodology to investigate. But despite the fact that it has improved its rigour, it tries to anticipate, such as the open science movement, where people produce their protocols in advance and say what what parameters are required for the results to be significant, etc. Many traditional scientists still criticize parapsychology.
0: I think that's one of those things isn't it about not knowing and you've exhausted every possible avenue in in the science what you consider to be scientific and then what you're left with sometimes is something that appears to be unscientific that can't be explained by science and I think that's where it doesn't sit well with some scientists.
1: Yeah so today we're going to focus on anomalous psychology and anomalous psychology is a study of human behavior and experience connected with with what is often called the paranormal however the assumption with anomalistic psychology is that there's nothing paranormal involved the idea is that with anomalistic psychology is that paranormal phenomena have naturalistic explanations and that you can use accounts based on psychology and physical Factors to explain what's going on. No, that's, that's a good point, Neil. Now, there's a number of important publications and ideas that have been produced over the years. So in terms of the history of the anomalous, we can look at publications going back to 1800, for example, when John Ferrier wrote an essay towards a theory of apparitions in 1813. Now, this is an important piece because it argues that the sightings of ghosts with the results of optical illusions and we see that idea quite often when things like photographic or film evidence are produced and critics of the paranormal will say well that you know that's due to a double exposure that's due to a trick of the light mm-hmm.
0: i mean does this bring into question the difference between a parapsychologist and an anomalistic psychologist neil
1: yes because the parapsychologist would be looking to provide evidence to confirm the existence of parapsychological phenomena, whereas the anomalistic psychologist would be trying to debunk it, if you like, or try to find rational, grounded scientific explanations.
0: Mm. I suppose it's, this, it's looking for the supporting empirical evidence,
1: isn't it, where possible, to try and back up the claims? Indeed, and the idea of optical illusions is a classic example. You know, we've seen many cases over the years where people have come in with orbs or distorted figures that can be explained by photographic or light anomalies. Mm. And that was the point that Ferrier was making in 1813. I mean, a little later, the French physician Alexandre Briere de Biesemont published Mm -hmm. a book called On Hallucinations, or the Rational History of Apparitions, Dreams, Ecstasy, Magnetism and Somnambulism Mm -hmm. in 1845. And this was when they started to view ghosts and apparitions as being the result of faulty mental processes, or if you like, hallucinations, so that you could explain ghostly events, hauntings and the sightings of ghosts as being due to the figment of the mind.
0: I mean, it's an interesting concept, the area of the mind, how people are perceiving their world and how potentially people are misperceiving.
1: Yeah, and we can see from these early works that we're already talking about perceptual, perceptual anomalies and the interpretation of perceptual anomalies and creative mental processes. These are giving people the false impression of paranormality. And that they're key tenets in, in terms of anomalistic psychology. I mean, if we just move slightly forward from there, another idea that dates back a considerable amount of time was by William Benjamin Carpenter in his book, Mesmerism, Spiritualism, etc., Historically and Scientifically Considered. Now, he wrote that spiritualist practices could be explained by fraud, delusion, hypnotism and suggestion. And again, these are very important ideas that have come through to modern interpretations. I mean, you've touched
0: on some some
1: interesting topics there already, you know, the idea of hypnosis
0: or the, uh, you know, the kind of the cognitive biases perhaps that, that, that people are actually you know, they're employing and not, not realising when they make sense of the world.
1: Yeah, I mean, certainly suggestibility is important because as we've seen on some of the programmes in contemporary society i mean a few years ago in the uk most haunted was particularly popular within that program people would go to haunted locations with the expectation that they would experience something anomalous
0: yeah it's already set isn't it that they're going to go to a place where people countless people have actually said they've claimed and they've seen apparitions or or they've experienced some sort of ghostly figure so yeah people are going there in in the hope of of seeing these and feeling these things
1: and in, in modern research, there's that idea of the contagion effect, the idea that when you go into a haunted location and other people start to experience unusual things, that spreads throughout the group.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it brings into question the element of authenticity. You know, actually what's being experienced and this collective contagion can, can affect the way people interpret their their, uh, their observations.
1: And from our own experiences, when we've gone on ghost vigils as part of the parapsychological society, notably at Odsell Hall. It was quite interesting that after people had gone around the building and then we came back to discuss what had happened, as soon as people started narrating experiences, feelings, sensed presence, unusual smells and temperature fluctuations, then other people were quite happy then to volunteer information that was consistent with these paranormal or unusual accounts it's interesting how this
0: crosses over
1: into belief in the paranormal doesn't it how, how people's belief can shape their interpretation no i was going to say i think that fits in with suggestion because, mm. because the idea then is it's not other just other people's suggestion so if you suggest to me that something's going on that's a form of external suggestion but mm. if you like belief is already framing my expectations of what's going to go on so in a way it's a ter, it's a it's a form of internal inference or suggestion if you like so again you you can see that these ideas are not new in terms of how to explain paranormal phenomenon but they date back to the 1800s i mean another interesting idea was produced by british psychiatrist henry maudsley he produced mm-hmm. natural causes and supernatural seemings in 1886 and wrote that so called supernatural experiences can be explained in terms of disorders of the mind and were simply malobservations and misinterpretations. And going back to what we were saying before, one of the things that happens when when we've been on these visuals is that people see things, feel things, sense things that are unusual. What determines whether they think it's paranormal or not is the attribution they give to it. So if well, I, I see if I see a light anomaly in the corner of the room and I say, "Oh well, that must have just been a car going past it's the headlights have just caught the wall and it was due to that. Well, we move on. that's that's regarded, it's been explained. However, alternatively, I could say, well, that was unusual. I'm not sure what that was. or further still, if I believe in the paranormal and I believe that place is haunted, I can then start to explain. That unusual occurrence, in terms of my beliefs, in terms of that context, and start to see things as being paranormal.
0: Well, you you're funny, you took the words out of my mouth. I was going to say it's about the how people attempt to explain uh, what they think is paranormal. You know, what their what their experience has been, and if they've already sort of got a, a mindset or a, or a predisposition to to consider that this this type of phenomena exists. Then that's going to shape indeed their related beliefs and also the experiences that how they interpret them, and so on.
1: yeah, a few a few years ago, if you remember, we produced the survey of anomalous experiences with Harvey Irwin. That's an attribution based model that works on what we've just explained. So first of all, do people notice something in the physical environment? So if we go to a haunted house, do we notice something? Now mm. you might notice, Um, an orb i may completely ignore it so the first stage in whether we think something's haunted or not is do we notice something then the second Mm. stage is having noticed it how do we explain it now it could be that we notice it and we just dismiss it oh that was just dust in the air it could be we notice it and i'm not sure what that was that's unusual but we're quite happy to leave it at that stage. It's when it gets to that third stage where we notice something unusual. We're not happy with the normal physical explanations, and we then draw upon paranormal explanations, such as it's a ghost, it's an apparition, it's something paranormal. That's when we reach that stage where people are inferring paranormal activity occurring
0: considering that all paranormal claims are invalid, I think is is an error. It's just in the context of perhaps the evidence that's put forward. Because I think sometimes that evidence can be more compelling, can't it?
1: Well there are bodies of evidence to support the ideas of, for example, extrasensory perception and remote viewing. The problem, despite the evidence basis, despite data banks of statistical support, is that you cannot reproduce these phenomena to order and also for every study that produces a significant result several will fail to reproduce that finding
0: yeah i mean i think it's it's interesting for people that are listening to this that um, from my perspective i always i'm always a compassionate skeptic so i'm sort of 98 99% you know skeptical about most of these things but in that context i'm never 100% so you know, I don't think we can explain everything by current science I and mean, we can't explain everybody's misperception because most of the people are sane, intelligent and honest when they're reporting these things. So usually some people will ask us, you know, is, is it connected to people being rather insane? And the answer is no. They're within the normal population, often reporting these things, aren't
1: they? They are. And the politicising or the subjectifying of the paranormal and the anomalous is not new. I mean, in the 1890s, the German psychologist Max Dessere and psychiatrist Albert Moll formed the critical occultism position. The viewpoint Hmm. interpreted phenomena naturalistically, so they were looking for naturalistic explanations, and all apparent cases were attributed to normal causes such as suggestion, unconscious cues, psychological factors or fraud. And as you said, that can be the problem with anomalous psychology because it's being driven by the assumption that the paranormal doesn't exist and there's nothing of interest within these data that cannot be explained by conventional science. So yeah, that no, in no, its, I think that's spot on, yeah. So that in its way is motivated closed-mindedness.
0: Mm -hmm. i mean i I think again the question just backing up with what you just said then is you know if paranormal forces or or paranormal phenomena don't exist then how might we explain this you know how might you explain a paranormal type phenomena or psi or some sort of unknown phenomena so how how do we go about explaining that
1: well again one of the things that anomalistic psychology does and again the critical occultism uh, movement was potentially open to that was to find specific cases of fraud particularly those associated with mediumship phenomena and then generalize them across the discipline generally so if you can find a few notable frauds you can very quickly say well look in this instance this phenomena was produced by people people sleight of hand or hmm. by them having confederates in the room, moving objects by string and by by clever manipulation. So if if you can if you can establish that in a few cases, then it's a very compelling argument to say, well, that must be true of the majority of cases. I suppose something to bring into,
0: into mind again about what we're talking about is that you know anomalistic psychology really is is not opposing parapsychology. I suppose it's more complementary it's just that certain uh, components certain purveyors of the anomalistic view um, seem to be directly opposed i mean they are quite complementary in a way aren't they i
1: think i think the point you're making that they overlap is is a good point they do to a degree overlap but i Mm -hmm. think at the extremes they are opposed You you have groups of people who are adamant that the parapsychology exists and you get an equal Number of people who are adamant it doesn't exist most Mm. people who are objective will sit somewhere in the middle with a leaning towards one of the two poles
0: from my own perspective Neil I tend to think sometimes it's this claim when something's a hundred percent I tend to get a little bit it makes me feel a bit uneasy when somebody's making a hundred percent claim that that this phenomena exists and in the same way this phenomena doesn't exist
1: I do but that's still, my perspective,
0: not yours, but I think I, that's how I feel when I look at a lot of the res- results and, and research that we've read.
1: I agree, but as you know, there are a lot of enthusiasts on both sides of the fence. Mm, uh, yeah, of course. And as I say, when we started talking about this little segment, it was about the fact that people are driven by their views, their subjective beliefs, rather than a desire to establish truth. And I think that bias is one that can affect the way in which people look at data, the way in which Mm -hmm. they interpret findings. Well, we've said Uh, that in the past, in previous
0: things we've talked about, about the experimenter effect, for example.
1: So, you know, there is a long tradition of this. I mean, another couple of people who were of interest were Lionel Weatherly, who, again, was a psychiatrist, and John Neville Maskelyne, who was a magician. And they wrote The Supernatural in 1891, and that offered rational explanations for apparitions, paranormal, religious experiences and spiritualism. And again, it's quite interesting to look at these formative anomalous based critical texts, because those ideas became prevalent within contemporary study. So, as we know from watching documentaries, many magicians are debunkers of the paranormal because they will point out that they can produce similar phenomena by using tricks and oh, indeed, the famous
0: ones james randy isn't he the amazing james randy
1: again yeah james randy will will point to the fact that you can reproduce paranormal phenomena by sleight of hand manipulation of the mind clever tricks
0: mm, indeed yeah
1: so as I say, that's nothing new. And again, Carl Jespers in his book, General Psychopathology, 1913, stated that all paranormal phenomena were manifestations of psychiatric symptoms. Now, I think that's a bit strong personally, but we know from our own research that certain sorts of psychological profiles are more open to unusual experiences and more likely to interpret them as paranormal regardless of the evidential basis that's not to say that people haven't had genuine paranormal experiences because as you say we don't know but what we can say is there are a group of people who are more likely to have unusual experiences due to cognitive perceptual factors and they are Mm. more likely due to their beliefs and the way they think about the world to interpret them as paranormal regardless of whether they are paranormal or not well it's interesting
0: isn't it it's the, it's the paranormal angle i suppose the way in which people might present it and that that's also in terms of findings from, from research and also the researcher and,
1: and anyway. you know today we have groups of people like the ones that feature in the skeptical inquirer who were there to debunk and again that's nothing new because Between 1926 and 1928, there was the German Journal for Critical Occultism, and within that, psychologists would publish articles that were very sceptical in nature and were about debunking, exposing paranormal as being nothing more than conventional science. Mm. And again, one of the things that undermines the evidential basis of much of parapsychology, as I said, is these notable cases of fraud one of the classic cases was Henry Slade, who was around between 1835 and 1905. And he was a famous medium who lived and practiced in both Europe and North America. And according to critics such as Joe Nickel, who is a very famous skeptic, Slade was repeatedly caught faking spirit messages in his séances and used magic tricks to convince people that they were communicating with the deceased loved ones friends and family and that case is notable again because slade actually confessed that he was manifesting these things by deception and again it was a very famous case because it was reproduced by harry houdini in his book a magician among the spirits in 1924 so cases like henry slade prominent examples where people who claim to have paranormal spiritualist abilities they raise questions in people's minds. And even in modern society, there was the case of James Heydrich, who claimed to be able to move the pages of a telephone directory and manipulate the building in which he performed martial arts because he was an instructor using Mm. his mind. And Danny Corrin exposed him as a fraud, and he admitted that he'd been making things up, he'd been inventing psychic phenomena.
0: I suppose what you're saying as well here, it's it's really this burden of proof, isn't it? Because what tends to happen is that, you know, believers say it's the the burden of proof is not theirs. And it's up to the sceptics to disprove the phenomena. But you get into this of the anomalistic sort of extreme uh, purveyors of anomalistic psychology, finding ways to disprove what what the the psychics or the mediums are claiming or what the the actual purveyor of of the the psychic ability uh, can do. So in, in that case, sometimes it's, it's, with the, it's about the believer and not the sceptic sometimes, but it's how that
1: burden of proof comes across. It is, you know, but the Henry Slade case isn't an, an isolated one. You've also got Eusepia Palladino, who, between 1854 and 1911, was an, in, an Italian spiritualist physical medium, and she went through this elaborate process where the spirits would take over a body, tables would levitate she would have these extreme emotions and then she would pass messages through her spirit guide john king and produce other supernatural phenomena and she convinced many people of her powers but again was caught being deceptive throughout her career and again harry houdini he claimed that she was nothing other than a clever trickster well one of the things is i mean you started out with this little subsection
0: about famous cases of fraud and really thinking about how people then can therefore commit fraud, because I think part of it might be about, you know, the, it's the focal point, surely, of, of the observers. How are they manipulated? How, how, how do they don't see things
1: that might give the game away? It's that kind of thing, isn't it, we're talking about? In terms of things like spiritualism, that taps into the very basic human need or desire to want to get in contact with people that have been lost, that have moved on, that have, that are deceased. And and that was a very powerful movement in the 1800s, spiritualism, and that influenced interest in the paranormal, interest in factors beyond conventional science and beyond conventional understanding. So in other words, people were very willing to believe, especially when you've got a strong religious element in society. Well, you because... could say that some of
0: these people might be, be seen as being vulnerable then. And in that case, you know, that the, the people that are purveying to have the ability become professional and they're seen as world class. And what happens is that there's, is that there's a need to believe in the psychic power.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, the, the classic case, of course, was the Fox sisters. There were three hmm. sisters from New York who played an important role in the creation of spiritualism. There was Leah, Margareta and Catherine or Kate. Mm. and the two younger sisters used wrappings to convince their older sister and others that they were communicating with spirits the older sister then took charge of them and managed their careers for some time and they all enjoyed success as mediums so the fact that they these girls allegedly could communicate with the spirit world brought lots of interest people would turn up to hopefully get them to communicate with people that had passed over mm. i mean it was only later on when they confessed that the wrappings had been a hoax. margarita did in 1880 and publicly demonstrated their method that there was the kickback against it but at the time when it was first happening people were very ready to take on board the ideas that they had some sort of special powers
0: Mm. I mean, I just—I think I was just bringing to, to, to the fore this idea of what what fraud is in this context and how it would be perceived. And again, we're not saying that everybody's a fraud and everybody doesn't possess something. It's just in the
1: context of the, the historical accounts that we're going to go through. Remember, I mean, history is an odd term, isn't it? Because the things mm-hmm. we've been talking about were happening in the 1880s and the early 1900s. But... Even in the 1970s and the 1980s, there were still people who were producing paranormal phenomena and claiming it was due to special powers mm. that evoked general interest. Now well, Yuri
0: Geller, I, Geller springs to mind straight away.
1: I mean, how big was Yuri Geller when we were young? Yuri, Yuri Geller was absolutely massive. He would appear on talk shows, he would bend spoons, he would do other sorts of demonstrations and people while skeptical were not as far as i'm aware i don't it might be a faulty memory but as far as i'm aware very few people were openly critical Mm. i mean james randy of course he was very damning of geller and and pointed out that geller had no psychic powers whatsoever but certainly when he was coming on and doing these interesting party pieces people were intrigued
0: well, the Johnny Carson show in the 1970s—that was that was the prime example, wasn't it? Of uh, James Randi being in the background and, and advising Johnny Carson's people how to deal with Uri Geller's people and Uri Geller, and saying, "Don't let him get his hands on all the, all the equipment. Just pr- produce it right on the time for the show. So when he's when he's asked to do his 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 um, size, show his psychic abilities, then you'll have a genuine control." You know because part of it we, we know from watching those programs is that he said that the conditions were not psi conducive he wasn't feeling strong that night and uh, i think some of it is not is not falsifiable this is one of the problems isn't it that you can't attest to the fact that he might not have been
1: so anyway no but i mean so, so you know the, these ideas still prevail from time to time people are still open to believing that paranormal phenomena is genuine. And the anomalistic movement, if you like, is is a sort of kickback against that. It's resisting. Now, in terms of the modern interpretation of anomalistic psychology, the term was first introduced by the psychologist Leonard Zuzny and Warren Jones in their book, Anomalistic Psychology, A Study of Magical Thinking, in 1989. And the text systematically addressed phenomena of human consciousness and behaviour that may appear to violate the laws of nature when they don't. So that's where the term dates back to. We can see that the ideas underpinning anomalistic psychology were fairly old, dating back hundreds of years. However, the term only came into being in the late 1980s, and then it became more prevalently used that's not to say that people weren't working in the area of anomalous psychology so for example the canadian psychologist graham reed published a major work on the subject the psychology of anomalous experience in 1972 Mm -hmm. so there's there's long been a tradition but the term only arose fairly recently Uh, and and talking about as we were um, about the general critical view, about some people being very damning of the idea of parapsychology generally. In his 1980 edition of ESP, a scientific evaluation, Hansel noted that after a hundred years of research, not a single individual has been found who can demonstrate ESP to the satisfaction of independent investigations. For this reason alone, it's unlikely that ESP exists. I think think that statement typifies one that would upset many parapsychological researchers. Yeah, it would. Because they would claim that evidence has been produced.
0: Yeah, they would, yeah. I mean, obviously, levels of significance and and levels of effect size, depending on the type of experiment or piece of research, yeah.
1: Well, that idea is often cited as a criticism of parapsychology. The fact that people have been researching it for years and have never found anything, or they've had problems reproducing other people's findings, is often seen as a major criticism of parapsychology but that doesn't mean people are still not doing work in the area i mean if you look at the present journal of parapsychology there's still esp studies regularly published
0: yeah i mean i mean obviously research into, into extracentric perception is, is still a it's still an important piece of research for many people isn't it there's still various sort of ganzfeld experiments are still undertaken today aren't they
1: they yeah, are. And then it's also quite interesting that, I mean, fortunately, we very rarely attract criticism because we sit, I think, quite comfortably in the middle. We, we say, well, whilst we're not particularly convinced by paranormal phenomena, we're not here to debunk it. Mm. We're not here to criticise other people's findings. The occasional times when we do get researchers contacting us and saying, you are aware that this exists is when you do make statements like there is no evidence for the existence of extrasensory perception. <laughs> mm.
0: I think one of the things is though it's like when you look at the research say of, of Sargent or of Bem or Radin or Harris or Honorton. a lot of these studies or even Smelder there's a lot of studies that have been done which you can be used to interpret the findings as having some form of significant or, or effect size which suggests some sort of psi event has happened you know but it's If you look at, say, a percentage of 30% versus 25, which is the base level of chance, it's the interpretation of of the findings that are important across all of the research.
1: It is indeed. And I think there's a temptation as well to think that if you can discredit one area of the paranormal, you can discredit all areas. So whilst you can look at psychological publications and they might be able to explain things like mediumship, out-of-body experiences, they might be able to reproduce fake seances where people have analogous experiences to those in genuine seances. That doesn't necessarily cancel out the possibility that other paranormal phenomena or paranormal phenomena in different contexts exists. All it proves is that by psychological methods, you can produce similar feelings and sensations. And we found that in one of our studies, but we didn't claim that it explained all haunting phenomena. We just said under these circumstances, it is possible to evoke similar sensations to those witnessed in genuine haunting accounts.
0: Well, clearly there are methodological issues, aren't they?
1: And so the key with anomalistic psychology is to try to provide plausible non-paranormal accounts supported by empirical evidence of how psychological and physical factors might combine to give the impression of paranormal activity when actually non-exists and as you said that draws on things like deception self-deception cognitive bias unusual psychological states such as dissociation, hallucination, personality factors, developmental issues, and memory distortions and confabulations. Mm. But certainly, as we've we've said over the years, sometimes we're not wholly satisfied by the use of these conventional explanations. Sometimes they're overly stretched. You'll read an account that's particularly interesting or convincing and then somebody will say oh it's just due to xyz and then you think i'm not sure that explanation fits that well i think it's just been overgeneralized. the idea of anomalistic psychology has also been made prevalent by some prominent researchers there's richard wiseman who has done a number of books explaining how parapsychological phenomenon can be explained by conventional factors and also professor chris french the founder of the anomalistic psychology unit in the Department of Psychology at Goldsmiths, University of London. Also, the psychologist David Marks wrote that the paranormal phenomena can be explained by magical thinking, mental imagery, subjective validation, coincidence, hidden courses and fraud, etc. And of course, there's other people like Robert Baker, who wrote that many paranormal phenomena can be explained via psychological effects such as hallucinations, sleep paralysis and hidden memories. So there is this movement of psychologists typically who will use and apply general explanations to the paranormal in order to explain them and i think that reflects a sort of tension as we said before there's these two camps aren't there there's people who are trying to establish the existence of parapsychological forces and those who are completely opposed to that who just look for normal conventional explanations In terms of the relationship with parapsychology, anomalistic psychology is sometimes described as a subfield of parapsychology. However, that's quite a stretch because anomalistic psychology rejects the paranormal claims. So it's basically there to explain away things using conventional science. And there's a very nice statement by Chris French, which I'm I'm going to read out. The difference between anomalistic psychology and parapsychology is in terms of the aims of what each discipline is about. Parapsychologists typically are searching for evidence to prove the reality of paranormal forces, to prove that they really do exist. So the starting assumption is that the paranormal things do happen, whereas anomalistic psychologists tend to start from the position that paranormal forces probably don't exist and that therefore we are looking for other kinds of explanations, in particular the psychological explanations for those experiences that people typically label as paranormal. Mm, Interesting. So that's the key key difference there is the supposition. Parapsychologists start with the starting point, yes, there could be paranormal forces, whereas anomalous psychologists think they, well, Many are certain they don't exist and therefore are looking to explain them using conventional explanations. Mm. I also like Chris's uh, definition because it talks about the idea of typically labeling. It talks about that attribution. It's about the fact that people are interpreting things. It's how they see the world. And that influences the way in which they appraise evidence and fit it in with their view of the world
0: yeah i mean it's, it's interesting that you saying that i think it's a fascinating uh, take on on what chris french believes I, mean, I think ultimately it's about this the unexplained isn't it and how people in, in both the anomalistic and the parapsychological are keen to find out more about the phenomena or find out more about the human condition the cognitive experience the cognitive processing i suppose it's, it's the, the sheer prevalence of the the material that's still for example, in the UK and the US, is still warranting that people look at this. It's still important in terms of, you know, the the individual difference that that people will possess. So I think that's still important to to, to face and and to, to examine in terms of the conventional scientific worldview, isn't it?
1: It is. And I think these distinctions are important for people to grasp because sometimes people will look at our research and they will say, well, why are you why why are you interested in these paranormal things? And we say, well, we're not actually interested in these paranormal things. We don't really care whether they exist or whether they don't exist. What we're interested in is why people believe in them. Mm. Why do people think that ghosts exist? Now, whether ghosts exist or not is completely incidental to the fact that they believe in them. It's completely unconnected uh, to the fact that believing in ghosts can have a profound effect on you psychologically
0: i think that's my point i think you've you've, you've summed that up pretty well neil yeah i think it's and i I think like you said uh, through our podcast earlier that that we're both not debunking I, i am certainly not a debunker and anybody that has any kind of you know abilities or claims to have experienced i take it seriously and i think that in the context of it you know i'm compassionate for those people i think it's how we try to explain you know the, the these phenomena and also people's experiences of these phenomena.
1: And I think that's the key. So we, we, I wouldn't put us. I wouldn't say that we are parapsychologists, and I wouldn't say that we are anomalistic psychologists. I would say that we're psychologists who have a strong interest in the paranormal. Yeah. Now that's not. that We're not interested in the phenomena per se. We're not interested in whether ESP exists. We're interested in people's perceptions and sensations and views and attitudes towards ESP.
0: Mm. I think underpinning it, though, I think we are. If somebody makes a claim that they're able to you know, move an object you know, by just thinking about it, and we've seen somebody shows us that this is what someone can do, I think we would be interested in that. But I don't think that's what our
1: research is about, is it? No, I'm, I'm talking about the focus. I'm not talking yeah, course, about yeah, I- yeah. individual interesting cases that could come along. I'm, I'm talking yeah, about course, a general yeah. perspective. So our interests are looking at the factors that influence the degree to which people believe in the paranormal conspiracy theories, urban legends, how their thinking style influences the way they see the world and how the way they see the world affects how they interpret unusual anomalous phenomena
0: yeah i think that's right i think it's the experience and their interpretation you know it's the the related claims and how they're explained and how people perceive that's important isn't it
1: yeah i think so i think so but it this distinction between the parapsychological and the anomalistic is is important because many people just don't grasp it they don't see that you can research in the area without necessarily Wanting to prove or disprove that paranormal phenomena exist. Yeah, and it's similar to saying that somebody can question the fact that you don't
0: believe in something, and yet you're you're willing to research the subject, um, which then brings into question what I mentioned before about experimental effects.
1: You know, I mean, I mean as we said before, um, many many people believe in the existence of paranormal phenomena. Many people will recant a paranormal experience if we ask them, "Have you had a paranormal experience?" of people will say they've had some sort of unusual anomalous experience so Mm. these experiences are common yet the study of parapsychology is often frowned upon marginalized and ridiculed even though it's a fundamental part of everyday experience
0: Mm. I suppose importantly as well just just to conclude it's it's about the relevance to the person it's relevant to the person's experience and their interpretation, you know, and uh, I think that's what makes the subject area so fascinating. And so um, it's so intuitive and so, so such an area of, of material to, to, to deal with this through cognitive and neuropsychological processes that, uh, that make it a psychological, uh, well, a really nice um, place
1: to be in terms of our research. It is, and the importance of anomalistic psychology of course in the last few years was recognized when it was added to one of the a levels it was a an option was Mm. to look at anomalistic psychology so it was actually part of psychology a level for a while it drops in and drops out but the fact that it was deemed significant and important enough to be on the a level syllabus shows how these ideas are Formatively influential. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, anyway, that's that's great. Well, thank you, Neil, for uh, for that, and uh, thanks, folks, for listening. And uh, we'll catch you next time on uh, one of our anomalous parapsychological podcasts. Yes, thank you very much. Bye for now.